This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 59 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Ranger 8 through 9 and Intelsat 1. During 1965, there were several significant unmanned scientific missions launched. Three of them will be covered in this episode. The first is Ranger 8. You may recall from episode 43, the probe Ranger 7 became the first spacecraft to send close-up pictures of the moon. Of course, Ranger 7 was part of the Ranger series created by NASA to take high-quality pictures of the moon and transmit them back to Earth in real time. These images were not only to help select landing sites for future Apollo missions, they were also to be used for scientific study. Each Ranger spacecraft was designed to make a kamikaze dive straight into the moon and send close-back images back to Earth right up until they crashed into the surface of the moon. You may recall, Ranger spacecrafts were originally designed beginning in 1959 in three distinct phases called blocks. Ranger 6, 7, 8, and 9 were the Block 3 versions. The spacecraft consisted of a hexagonal aluminum frame base 1.5 meters across on which was mounted the propulsion and power units topped by a truncated conical tower which held the TV cameras. Two solar panel wings each 0.739 meters wide by 1.537 meters long extended from opposite edges of the base with a full span of 4.6 meters and a pointable, high-gain dish antenna was hinge-mounted at one of the corners of the base away from the solar panel. A cylindrical, quasi-omnidirectional antenna was seated on top of the conical tower. The overall height of the spacecraft was 3.6 meters. Propulsion for the mid-course trajectory connection was provided by a 224-newton thrust monopropellant hydrazine engine with four jet vane vector controls. Orientation and attitude control about three axes was enabled by 12 nitrogen gas jets coupled to a system of three gyroscopes, four primary sun sensors, two secondary sun sensors, and an earth sensor. Power was supplied by 9,792 silicon solar cells contained in the two solar panels, giving a total array area of 2.3 square meters 
and producing 200 watts. Two 1200 watt hour silver zinc oxide batteries rated at 26.5 volts with a capacity of 9 hours of operation powered each of the separate communications slash TV camera chains. Two 1000 watt hour batteries stored power for spacecraft operations. The spacecraft carried six television Vidicon cameras. The cameras were arranged in two separate chains or channels with different exposure times, fields of view, lenses, and scan rates, each self-contained with separate power supplies and timers and transmitters so as to afford the greatest reliability and probability of obtaining high-quality television pictures. Two of the cameras were wide-angle, cameras A and B, and four were narrow-angle. No other experiments were carried on the spacecraft. Communications were through the quasi-omnidirectional low-gain antenna and the parabolic high-gain antenna. Transmitters aboard the spacecraft included a 60-watt TV channel F at 959 MHz, a 60-watt TV channel P at 960 MHz, and a 3-watt transponder channel 8 at 960 MHz. The telecommunications equipment converted the composite video signal from the camera transmitters into an RF signal for subsequent transmission through the spacecraft's high-gain antenna. Sufficient video bandwidth was provided to allow for rapid framing sequences of both narrow and wide-angle television pictures. The launch vehicle for Ranger 8 was the now-reliable Atlas 196D with an Agena B6006 upper stage. Here's an audio clip on the function of the Agena. I was saying even more critical than the Atlas is the Agena B. It must first burn its upper stage engines to insert the Ranger spacecraft into orbit. And then after about a 12-minute coast period, while scientists here read their telemetry reports, check their computers to find out exactly where the spacecraft is, Agena will be called upon to burn a second time. Its engines must ignite again to give the Ranger a little extra kick. Of the word in the in the space age, it'll be traveling at five miles a second in space at 17,000 miles an hour. But it must have a speed of more than 24,000 miles an hour in order to escape the Earth's gravitational pull. That's about seven miles a second, and this is what Agena must do. On February 17, 1965, Ranger 8 lifted off at 17:05 Universal Time. We now join the countdown at T minus 60 seconds. Power in the final minute of the count. As always, one of the most gripping moments that any reporter can possibly have. 40 seconds to go. There will be a burst of fire under the Atlas first stage booster about three seconds before liftoff. Arms will hold the booster on the pad until it has enough thrust to actually be committed to space. And then it's on its way into the clear Florida skies. From this point on, I'm going to be quiet and let you listen to Ed Mason in the blockhouse. The final seconds in the count. Everything is go. We're ready to go.
The Atlas booster performed nominally, injecting the Agena and Ranger 8 into an Earth parking orbit at 185 kilometers altitude. After launch, control of the Ranger was transferred to JPL. Control of the flight of Ranger actually will shift very quickly from Cape Kennedy here uh, all the way across the country to California to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where we have a report now from CBS News correspondent Bill Stout. Sprawling at the foot of Southern California's San Gabriel Mountains, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory was dedicated less than a year ago. One of the newest space flight operations facilities, and right next door, in the very next room, they're ready for Ranger. Tracking and control will be here from liftoff to the very end. From a few seconds after launch at Cape Kennedy, through the picture taking as this second moon photo mission bores in on its target, the instant Ranger impacts on the surface of the moon. Here they'll adjust Ranger's course using these instruments, this data processing equipment. That'll be sometime this evening, 16 hours after launch. And here they'll keep dozens of electronic fingers on the spacecraft's pulse. Constant measurement of temperature, voltage, and pressure. This is the heart of the worldwide tracking network. Johannesburg, South Africa, Woomera, Australia, Goldstone, California. Each has control roughly one-third of a day to make sure there is no break in communication. And all the information comes here. Four days from now, we'll see the pictures. Now we have a clip of Charles Cole, the Chief of Engineering Mechanics Division of JPL, explaining what happens next with Ranger 8. Go. We have with us uh, Mr. Charles Cole, who is the uh, Chief of the Engineering Mechanics Division of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, in charge of this particular mission. I imagine you're a pretty happy man right now. Yes, very happy. Uh, can you give us some idea of what comes next? We know, of course, we have to have the second stage burn of the Agena. Then what happens? Uh, then the uh, Agena and spacecraft coast along together until uh, Johannesburg uh, DSIF station picks it up at which time the spacecraft is separated from the Agena. The Agena backs off, and later, uh, about this time, it enters the Earth's shadow. And uh, later on, the solar panels are commanded uh, to be opened, and as it emerges from the Earth's shadow, the uh, spacecraft automatically acquires the sun. And two or three hours later, the uh, Earth acquisition uh, sequence starts in which we now uh, try to acquire the Earth with the high-gain antenna. Then we switch to the high-gain uh, uh, transmitter. Just how delicate is the mid-course correction if one is required? It's a pretty precise uh, uh, operation. It's not a real delicate operation. Uh, if we have the proper orbit determination, uh, there's, it really isn't critical. Mm -hmm. uh, I read uh, in one of the uh, NASA press releases that uh, a burn of more than one-tenth of a second on the part of the Gina in the second burn could cause a miss of as much as 1,200 miles in, in reaching your target on the moon. That must uh, give you the creeps. Well, that's correct, but uh, if it's properly timed, there shouldn't be any problem. Uh, uh, about when will the camera start transmitting pictures back to Pasadena? Um, 
about 65 hours from now, uh, a little more than that, uh, just about 15 minutes before uh, impacting the moon, the pictures will start with the uh, two uh, uh, full-angle uh, uh, cameras and uh, then with the four uh, partial scan cameras. Are you looking for more information on this flight than you got from Ranger 7? Uh, yes, sir, we are. Uh, we're, in, we're looking at a different area of the moon, and uh, uh, any information is more information. Thank you very much, Mr. Cole. Fourteen minutes after liftoff, a 90-second burn of the Agena put the spacecraft into lunar transfer trajectory. And several minutes later, the Ranger and Agena separated. The Ranger's solar panels were deployed, attitude control activated, and spacecraft transmissions switched from the Omni antenna to the high-gain antenna. Everything was going according to plan up to now. On February 18th, at a distance of 160,000 kilometers from Earth, the planned mid-course maneuver took place. This involved reorientation and a 59-second rocket burn. During the 27-minute maneuver, the spacecraft transmitter power dropped severely so that lock was lost on all telemetry channels. This continued intermittently until the rocket burn ended at which time power returned to normal. The telemetry dropout had no serious effects on the mission. A planned terminal sequence to point the cameras more in the direction of flight just before reaching the moon was canceled to allow the cameras to cover a greater area of the moon's surface. Ranger 8 reached the moon on February 20, 1965. Here is a clip beginning at the final seven minutes before lunar impact in the Sea of Tranquility. Pay close attention and you will hear the voice of Ranger 8. Seven minutes away from impact on the moon now. Incidentally, you can hear a hum in your television and radio sets right now, and that is the voice of Ranger. It's radio telemetry reports, which are coming back from the spacecraft as it makes its terminal plunge toward the moon. And when that sound disappears, when you don't hear it anymore, at that precise second, you will know that Ranger 8 has actually clobbered into the moon. But before doing so, apparently, it has really done its job. Scientists here are hopeful that they'll collect more than 7,500 pictures of the lunar surface, and as it sweeps across the moon, it's doing something quite a bit unlike Ranger 7, which flew last July. Ranger 7, if you'll consider this is the moon, this table right here, came in like this almost directly. Now, Ranger 8 is coming in with sort of a sweep motion, and as a result, it's passing over a much larger portion of the lunar surface, and therefore returning more photos, which should be of value to scientists and uh, give them a greater chance of determining uh, a likely landing spot for U.S. astronauts in the Apollo manned lunar program. That medium-pitched hum, somewhat reminiscent of an acoustical-style modem, is Ranger 8. Now the final two minutes of the flight. When the hum stops, that means Ranger 8 has impacted the moon. Camera. 
And now we have just almost exactly to the second, two minutes to go before impact of Ranger 8 on the moon. And again, all indications are it is sending back more than 7,500 pictures of the moon before it crashes in. And now again, listen for that sound. This is the voice of Ranger coming back to Earth in almost its final minute of life after a 65 our 248,000-mile journey to the moon. When that constant hum dies out, we will know that Ranger has actually impacted on the moon. We're going to be quiet now and uh, let you listen. here because they have been told that there is sharp definition of the area in the Sea of Tranquility where Ranger 8 will make its impact. This is important because it will provide better pictures, better quality pictures of the lunar surface than did Ranger 7 last July. Now we're in the final minute of the flight, 65 hours long to the moon, and this time we will be quiet and let you hear the end of Ranger's voice. pictures turned out well. The first image was taken at 9.34 Universal Time at an altitude of 2,510 kilometers. This was followed by the transmission of 7,137 photographs of good quality over the final 23 minutes of flight. The final image taken before impact had a resolution of 1.5 meters per pixel. The spacecraft encountered the lunar surface in a direct hyperbolic trajectory with incoming asymptotic direction at an angle of minus 13.6 degrees from the lunar equator. The orbit plane was inclined 16.5 degrees to the lunar equator. After 64.9 hours of flight, impact occurred at 9.57 Universal Time on February 20, 1965, in the Sea of Tranquility at an impact velocity of 2.68 kilometers per second, which is approximately 
6,000 miles per hour. The spacecraft performance was excellent. The impact crater of Ranger 8 was approximately 13.5 meters wide. The crater was later photographed by Lunar Orbiter 4. About one month later, it was time to launch another moon probe. You can probably guess what it was called. Yes, it was Ranger 9. Ranger 9 was virtually identical to Ranger 8. The mission was the same as Ranger 8, except Ranger 9 was to photograph the Alphonus Crater. As we mentioned a while ago with Ranger 7 and Ranger 8, we, we, we did receive photographic uh, pictures or photographs of the surface of the moon. The object this time is to hit an old crater called Alphonsus, which is located a little bit closer to that line on the moon where there are shadows caused by the Earth. And the reason for doing this, I'm told, is because uh, the more shadow they have, the better type picture they get, the better resolution, more definition, the sharper, in short, the pictures will be, and the sharper they are, the more the scientists will have a chance of learning from them. Ranger 9 used the same type of launch vehicle and upper stage as Ranger 8, the Atlas-Agena combination. Now we join launch coverage of Ranger 9 at T minus 3 minutes. And uh, in 30 seconds from now, we'll reach a critical point. If there's going to be any hold, it'll come just after this 30-second point. It doesn't look at now that they're getting proper readouts in the blockhouse from all the telemetry from the vehicles, from the two vehicles, uh, the first stage, the Atlas, and the second stage, the Agena, plus the fact that they've got all their gear in the blockhouse, all the indicators and dials and so on, in sync, compatible with this particular vehicle because everything works in compatibility. This range of control, the countdown is now at T-minus 2 minutes and 30 seconds. The Agena Destruct is internal and armed. That's a go. The Agena Umbilical is enabled. Control. And that's a go. So we're past the last of the critical points. It'll have to be something very severe to stop everything now. The destruct buttons are, of course, the destruct arming is to... T-minus two minutes. Watts tanking is secured on the Atlas booster. As you see, the locks vents have closed, and there's no longer the white vapor coming from the top of the vehicle. The one at the bottom Atlas is just closed. on internal power. Arm switch is on. T-minus 140. Arm switch now. The missile is on internal power at this time. Arm switch now means that the range safety officer has control of that bird. If anything wobbles once it lifts off. The range has given us a clear to launch. We are clear to launch. T-minus 1 minute and 20 seconds. That was our ready systems are on. Just before, director is go. just before we let uh, range control count you down here, this shot represents about $25 million. T-minus 60 seconds. Helium is internal. The flight distance, 230,000 miles. T-minus 50 seconds. Autopilot ready light is on. Ranger goes well, it'll reach the moon early Wednesday morning. Now the count comes up. 30 seconds. The mission is go.
Air pass, D minus 20 seconds and count. 15 seconds. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. Holding momentary. Ignition. 3, 2, liftoff. Time is 4.37 and 9 seconds. Shortly after launch, the newscaster heard an explosion. We're now almost 40,000 feet. Speed is approaching 2,000 miles an hour. T plus 90 seconds. The mission looks normal at this time. The plotboard traces are close to nominal. T plus one minute and we are 40 still seconds. Tracking. We are still tracking the vehicle with the BU scope in the hopes that you will see what is called BICO. That sounded like an explosion. Did you read that? There's the blockhouse, Orion Reed. GE steering has been initiated at T plus two minutes. T plus two minutes, the mission looks good at this time. Well, the mission is good. That was a local explosion. This is the blockhouse. Orion Reed is the General Dynamics flight launcher here. The TJ O'Malley, the flight controller. We have confirmed BECO. Booster ignition cutoff has occurred. The mission looks good at this time. BECO took place with the a speed has been jettisoned. The mission continues to look good at T plus 2 minutes and 30 seconds. Jettison the shielding. Vico took place at about 4,800 miles an hour. The rocket is now doing almost 7,200. The tracings look good. The rocket appears to be close to its nominal course. It's T plus 2 minutes and 50 seconds. And it's about 45 miles up. As you can see, the blockhouse looks pretty calm. So that T plus you're... 3 minutes. The mission looks smooth at this time. So the telemetry shows a good trajectory all the way. And once the Agena is put into orbit with the Ranger, control will switch to the Jet Propulsion Laboratories in California. This is Ranger Launch Control. The count is now T plus two minutes and 30 seconds. Two Air Force F-4Cs were used as chase aircraft on this mission, photographing the liftoff of the Atlas Agena rocket, and this caused the sonic boom, which you heard a few minutes ago. We are at T plus three minutes and 50 seconds. The mission is normal at this time. The plot board tracings are very close to the nominal that we anticipated. T plus four minutes. We couldn't see the chase plane, so we didn't want to guess at any sonic booms, but that's the word. And because of the wind, the chase planes usually start up to the north of the rocket. Because of the wind, we got it louder here on the ground than anyone else read it, probably. In spite of the sonic boom of the chase planes causing a little bit of excitement, on March 21, 1965, the Atlas 204D and the Agena B-6007 boosters performed nominally and injected Agena and Ranger 9 into an Earth orbit at 185 kilometers altitude. A 90-second Agena second burn 
put the spacecraft into lunar transfer trajectory. Here's the clip. We have just had a report from Ranger Control that the Agena rocket has relighted. Its purpose now in the next 90 seconds is to take the vehicle from 17,600 miles an hour to 24,525 miles an hour and put it in a tunnel on a trajectory to the moon. The burn was followed by the separation of the Agena and Ranger. At T plus 70 minutes, the command was given to deploy solar panels, activate attitude control, and switch from the Omni antenna to the high gain antenna. The initial trajectory was so accurate the planned mid-course correction was delayed from March 22nd to March 23rd when the maneuver was initiated at 12.03 Universal Time. Ranger 9 reached the moon on March 24th at 13.13 Universal Time. The news coverage began at 23 minutes before impact. Good morning. Ranger 9 is 23 minutes away from impact on the surface of the moon. The spacecraft is 1,772 miles from the moon, or 243,636 miles away from Earth. The flight, which began Sunday afternoon at Cape Kennedy, will terminate in a crater, Alphonsus, 250 miles south of the lunar equator. And we expect to see live pictures of the final 10 minutes transmitted through space, showing the surface of the moon as Ranger 9 nears the moon from an altitude of about 900 miles. This is the Space Flight Operations Facility at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where the flight of Ranger 9 has been controlled since just a few minutes after launch. Scientists here have been following the flight, making two slight corrections in its course, one early Tuesday morning and another at 8.08 this morning, Eastern Time. We are now at impact minus 22. JPL staff members and others await the first live pictures from the spacecraft. We will be hearing a lot of space and photographic terminology. Goldstone, a receiving station in the Mojave Desert, 150 miles from Pasadena. F cameras will be the full scan or wide-angle cameras. Resolution will refer to the clarity or the detail of the pictures. Maria will be the dry seas of the moon. Francis will be the target, a crater with a 3,000-foot peak from which some astronomers have seen a red cloud indicating possible volcanic activity. Ranger 9 is now at impact minus 21, and we will have more of this report on the flight of Ranger 9 in just a moment. The terminal maneuver was executed to orient the spacecraft so the cameras were more in line with the flight direction to improve the resolution of the pictures. 20 minutes before impact, the one-minute camera system warm-up began. The first image was taken at 1349 Universal Time at an altitude of 2,363 kilometers above the moon. Do you attempt to bring you real? 
pictures are coming to you live in real time. We are using a scan conversion process which converts the 1152 scan lines of, of the Ranger system into your standard television's framing system with over 500 lines. <laughs> the quality of the pictures appear to be excellent. If the system continues to work as is indicated by what we see out of the scan converter at this time, we will have an unusual series of pictures of a very interesting portion of the moon. This scan conversion system is new. It is borrowed from our surveyor program. It was not available before to us, and this will be the first chance that even the ranger experimenters have of seeing these pictures from the moon in real time. Moving in a little closer to the surface of the moon, as you can see, the edge of Ptolemaeus is beginning to be clipped at the top of our field of view. We've moved such that... Now listen for the hum of Ranger 9 in the final minute before impact. As with Ranger 8, the humming will abruptly stop on impact. We're coming up on one minute to impact. 90 miles above the surface. The system is performing excellently. We're coming up on a half a minute to impact. close into the surface. With each picture you can see the surface now jump in your field of view as we move fast in towards our impact point. Excellent pictures. 20 seconds to go. Pictures look good. Each picture jumps you closer to the surface. In total, Ranger 9 transmitted 5,814 good contrast photographs during the final 19 minutes of flight. The last image taken before impact had a resolution of 0.3 meters per pixel. The spacecraft encountered the lunar surface with an incoming asymptotic direction at an angle of minus 5.6 degrees from the lunar equator. The orbital plane was inclined 15.6 degrees to the lunar equator. After 64 and a half hours of flight, impact occurred at 14.08 universal time, right on target in the Alphonus crater. Impact velocity was 2.67 kilometers per second. The spacecraft performance was excellent, and this was the first real-time television coverage with live network broadcast. Now let's move on to the final unmanned spacecraft of this episode. In Tailsat 1, nicknamed Early Bird for the proverb, the early bird catches the worm, was the first commercial communication satellite to be placed in geosynchronous orbit. 
It was built by the Space and Communications Group of Hughes Aircraft Company for Communications Satellite Corporation, which is abbreviated COMSAT. Early Bird's design stemmed from the CINCOM satellites that Hughes had built for NASA to demonstrate the feasibility of communications from synchronous orbit. For more on CINCOM, listen to episode 38. The satellite was cylinder-shaped, 59 centimeters long and 72 centimeters in diameter. It weighed 34 and a half kilograms. The outside of the cylinder was covered with solar cells and the inside housed two 6-watt transponders with 50 megahertz bandwidth, good enough for 240 voice circuits or one TV channel. Here's a brief audio description. Early Bird 1, the world's first commercial communications satellite, was launched by NASA for the Communications Satellite Corporation. Early Bird provides telephone, telegraph, high-speed data, and television between Europe and the United States. You probably recall from episode 38 the primary advantage of placing a communications satellite in synchronous orbit is that ground installations are greatly simplified. This is because the satellite has a fixed position in the sky. Complex and expensive tracking antennas are not required. However, in order to hold its position in relationship to the Earth, the satellite must be placed directly above the equator. The launch vehicle for Intelsat slash Earlybird was the Delta D, a three-stage rocket built by Douglas Aircraft Company. The Delta D was also known as the Thrust Augmented Delta and the Thor Delta D. The first stage was a Thor missile, and the second stage was the Delta D, which was derived from the earlier Delta C. An Altair II solid rocket motor was used as the third stage. The main difference between the Delta C and the Delta D was the presence of three Castor-1 solid rocket boosters clustered around the first stage. The satellite was launched on April 6, 1965 from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station Launch Complex 17A. Since Early Bird was launched from Cape Canaveral, which is north of the equator, certain maneuvers were necessary to properly position the satellite. These were performed by means of commands from the Earth station located at Andover, Maine. Early Bird was aligned by the Delta's third stage at an angle of 16.7 degrees to the equator and spin stabilized. It was separated from the third stage at 26 minutes 32 seconds after liftoff and coasted to its final apogee of 23,081 miles. During the elliptical orbits, Early Bird was precisely oriented by ground control with the firing of the apogee motor. On the sixth orbit apogee, Early Bird was thrust into an almost circular equator orbit near 32 degrees west longitude with an eastward drift rate of 1.5 degrees per day. Final synchronization to slow the drift rate and more nearly match the Earth's rotation rate was accomplished on April 14, 1965. This maneuver placed Early Bird at its planned position, 28 degrees west longitude. 
The attitude of the spacecraft was then changed to concentrate the antenna beam on the Andover and European Earth stations. The Earth station at Andover was equipped with Hughes-developed telemetry and command equipment. Intelsat-1 began its commercial service on June 28th in station-keeping orbit 22,300 miles above the equator. Early Bird provided line-of-sight communications between Europe and North America. As the forerunner of a commercial synchronous satellite system that would furnish communications to all populated areas of the world, Early Bird, with the capability of 240 circuits or one TV channel, successfully demonstrated the concept of synchronous satellites for commercial communications. As a communications repeater, Early Bird handled communications that were representative of all types of common carrier network traffic, including telephone, television, telegraph, and facsimile transmissions. It also helped provide the first TV coverage of a spacecraft splashdown, that of Gemini 6, in December 1965. Early Bird was designed to have an operational life of only 18 months, but it remained in full-time service for nearly four years. It was placed on reserve status in January of 1969, but recalled into service in June of that year for use during the Apollo 11 mission. Two months later, the satellite was again retired from active service and placed in orbital reserve. In 1990, it was briefly reactivated to commemorate its 25th launch anniversary. The satellite is currently inactive but still in orbit. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.